This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT10. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Citizen Radio, The Tom Hartman Program, The Majority Report, Jim Hightower, and Moyers and & Company. And a quick reminder that today's topic is basically the one ring to rule the ball. So listen up. The National Annenberg Election Survey did something interesting. They went and talked to constituents, and then they went to go see how senators and congressmen actually voted. And did they vote with the constituents or not? Well, turns out it depends. It depends on whether you have money or you don't have money. I know, shocking. shocking. I hope, I'm sorry, I should have given you a warning there. I probably knocked you over. Well, uh, they say that the, they checked the voting behavior of the senators from the 107th through the 111th Congress, they talked to 90,000 respondents, so this is a giant survey of the American people, uh, their different socioeconomic status, what their policy positions were, and who got listened to and who didn't. So let's go to some of the findings. Eric Dolan, who is uh, reporting on this, says, In all of the five Congresses examined, the voting records of senators were consistently aligned with the opinions of their wealthiest constituents. Shocking. The opinions of lower class constituents, however, never appeared to influence the senator's voting behavior. Now, the operative word there is never. Never. That's for poor constituents. Middle class we're going to get to in a second. Okay. So, now we move forward. The neglect of lower income groups was a bipartisan affair. Democrats were not any more responsive to the poor than Republicans. Bingo. See, this is what drives me crazy. Oh, no, no, just jank. You're ruining the Democrats' chance of re-election. And what would happen if they got re-elected? They apparently wouldn't listen to the poor any more than the Republicans do. Now, I am saying that because I lived through those Congresses. I saw it with my own eyes. I reported the nitty-gritty, all the details, all the bills, and how the Democrats play good cop and the Republicans play the bad cop, but their objective is the same to give everything to their wealthy donors and nothing to the rest of us because they don't represent us. And they talked to 90,000 respondents and saw the same exact thing. So here's some more. Hayes found that the middle class opinion was only represented in two of the Congresses examined. Are they not merciful? Two out of the five, whereas the poor got zero out of five. In the 110th and the 111th Congresses, when Democrats controlled both the Senate and the House, the voting records of senators reflected the opinions of middle class constituents as well as upper class constituents. So now that's the best you can do with the Democratic Party. When they control all of government, they care about the middle class a little bit, almost as much as they care about the upper class. Now, mind you, again, the poor never considered, not by the Democratic Party, not by the Republican Party. They're out of the equation. If you can't give me a dollar, I'm not going to give you a dollar. Sad day for you. That's how legalized bribery works in America now. Now, okay, so credit to the Democrats there for caring a little bit more about the middle class. Now, hold, don't give them too much credit, because here comes the next fact. Contrary to popular opinion, it was Democrats, not Republicans, who were more responsive to the upper class opinion in the 111th Congress. See, I didn't make this stuff up. I saw it, I reported it, that's why I have the opinions that I have, based on the facts. So. In that 111th Congress, that was one of the rare Congresses where they actually passed some laws that helped the middle class. But they, the Democrats 
wanted to help the upper class even more, not just more than the middle class, they wanted to help the upper class even more than the Republicans did. That's why so much of the corporate money now flows to the Democrats. Because they get they use the Republican Party to drive the conversation further and further right, and then they turn around and go, oh well those Republicans, I mean they're crazy. Go ahead, vote for the Democrats, vote for the Democrats. Oh look at that, Obama gave me uh, everything I wanted. He gave you 5% change, the appearance of change, so you shut up about it. And then he let me continue every policy we had under the Bush administration. And this very day, President Obama is arguing to lower corporate taxes. Wow, shocking. Democrats are part of the same corrupt system. In fact, they play a very important role in that system. And they hand your money over to the rich just as much as the Republicans. And apparently in the 111th Congress, a little more than the Republicans. Finally, Thomas J. Hayes, who led this at Trinity University, the research says, if equal responsiveness is a fundamental practice in a democratic society, my findings question the degree to which this occurs. You have to question the degree to which democracy occurs in America, because apparently you do not get true equal representation. You are not equal under the law. If you are poor, you will be completely ignored. If you're middle class, sometimes you get some crumbs off the table. But if you are rich, the Democrats and the Republicans will trip over themselves and compete with one another on who can service you better. Welcome to America. There is a way to change it. Anybody know how? Oh, you got that right, my friends. Wolf-pack.com. Enough of us running from them. Let's run towards them. Boo! Give them a little scare. All right. If you go to wolf-pack.com, it takes five seconds to sign the petition. It's one way of getting involved. If you want to be a member, take these guys on. Let's go get them, man. It can be fixed. Remember, there was a golden time. It's not like we never had this thing figured out. Remember in the 1970s, Ralph Nader was so strong, he got Richard Nixon to pass the EPA, to pass OSHA, got seatbelts in every car. The car makers said, oh my God, it's going to add money. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, it's the same old thing they always say, but they didn't have the power that they have now. So they were able to put seatbelts in the cars. If we had the current system we have now, you'd have no seatbelts. Everybody would be flying through the windshield. You know, it's, it makes a difference. And if we fight back, we can win and we can make a difference. But right now, this system is as corrupt as it has ever been. And if you're looking for some politician to save you, or the Democratic Party to save you, or amusingly enough, some, I guess, think the Republican Party is going to save them, man, you're knocking on the wrong door. Not time to knock on their doors in that way. It's time to blow their doors down with wolf-pack.com. Well, the first little pig built a house of hay. With a little bit of glue to make it all stay Don't take long to build a house of hay Gives you time to say the things you should say Like hey diddle dee, it's life for me Got the birds and the bees and the big old tree the Sun and the moon and the fish in the sea Now the second little pig built a house of wood Little out of wood cause he thought he could Don't take long to build a house of wood Gives you time to say the things that you should Like, hey, little D's, life's for me Got the birds and the bees and the big old tree Sun and the moon and the fish in the sea So really good news. Sure,
because we never open with good news. Well, it's a half an hour in. You know, <laughs> open the, the news part with good news. Larry Summers has withdrawn his name from the Fed chair job. Ah, you sexist douchebag son of a bitch. Uh, yeah, he. Uh, there's so much wrong with this guy. He is sexist. He's very cozy with Wall Street. He was basically like the nightmare nominee that obviously Obama wanted. Um, because he's so close to Wall Street, and therefore he has experience with ruining the economy. Yeah, guys, just because you have experience fucking up doesn't mean that you're good at your job. <laughs> That's how it works in America, though. The more you fail, the higher you rise. Well, it's like all the war pundits, right? Yeah. Like, hey, they were- Bill Crystal. How many times has Bill Crystal been wrong, you guys? Yeah, but. That's a big number, <laughs> and numbers impress people, so let's bring him on. And also, he's a white guy. Did yeah. we mention he's a white guy? Hey, how many wars have you been wrong about? Perfect. <laughs> let's talk about Iran. So obviously, this is really good news. When I talked with um, Occupy the SEC, this was one of their like big worries coming up, where they're like, Larry Summers getting the nomination, so we're going to do a lot of organizing around that if it happens, and he's withdrawn his name. But I have to read this quote, because... I want to make you think, Larry, a thing because of this quote. I have reluctantly concluded that any possible confirmation process for me would be acrimonious and would not serve the interest of the Federal Reserve. Mm. Really? You think it would be acrimonious? Because, like, you crashed the economy? You think? You and all your friends? You think, Larry? Remember when we had the economy and the economy was okay, and then you and your friends were like, let me play with the economy, and then (laughs) you broke the economy? You think maybe the guy who broke the economy wouldn't be good at taking care of the economy? Hmm. You think, Larry? See, see how perfect it is? Anytime someone says something incredibly obvious, like, wow, uh, you could have said that to uh, Brandon when he was like, Breaking Bad, something bad happened Oh, today? you think, Larry? You think, Larry? <laughs> now, you're probably going to be like, but what if they don't know who Larry is? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Because Larry's a hilarious name. It's a really funny name. Like, Larry Bird, arguably one of the best basketball players of his generation, will you ever... T- just think about him right now. It's hilarious. Oh, yeah. He's ridiculous. He probably wasn't even that good. No. But like, <laughs> you're like, well, for a Larry, I guess he's good at something. For a tall white guy named Larry. For a tall white guy named Larry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You think Larry? Now I just picture, then picture this if you want an extra level of hilarious. Okay. You think Larry? And then picture Larry Bird jumping, shooting a free throw, and it completely missing the basket. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the saddest thing in the world? It, it's the funniest thing in the world. It's pretty funny. So, um, so yeah, so that's really good. And I mean, this shows, oh, and he, when we say sexist, by the way, when he was the president of Harvard, then he like essentially said like women aren't good at math or like something like of that cliche caliber. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's an asshole. Um, and Obama was going to, this is like, when we try to explain to the Obama people, it's like people who are truly progressive, people who were mad about war under George Bush, people who are mad about like fucking over poor people under George Bush and just blindly support Obama. We're not – I mean a lot of times we're making fun of them. But at the heart of what we were trying to say, we're not making fun of them. We're saying if you – like Obama, you should be the one who is the most upset and the most uh, aggressive to get him to go and do what you claim he wants to do. Because, like, it happened this time. Like, if nobody – here's the way elections work, guys. If no one on your team is pressuring your guy to be more left-wing, then their team goes, okay, well, we don't need them to win an election. We just, we're the Democrats and we just 
started World War III while outlawing abortion, and they're still on Twitter getting mad at Glenn Greenwald. <laughs> they're still going to vote for you, right? So then who do we have to get? We have to get the right-wing moderates. We have to get libertarians. And so then, because all they care about are elections, so then all of their policies shift because they know we're just going to be their fucking lapdogs, so then they start pandering to the right. Yeah, and and what the media is trying to frame this as right now isn't necessarily that this was Larry Summers and Obama responding to the progressive base. What they're saying is, we just didn't have the votes in Congress. But then the follow-up question should be, why don't you have the votes in Congress? Right. Because the progressive and Democratic uh, officials are feeling the pressure from their constituents. Right. And it is always about grassroots activism. It is not about these officials suddenly finding in their hearts that they want to reject Wall Street and Wall Street's billions and billions of dollars in contributions. It's that they feel like if they support the nomination of someone who is so close to the people who tanked the economy, yep. it's going to look terrible and their constituents are going to get pissed off. And it's awesome that it like it worked this time. You know, like we have temporarily prevented something in syria we have uh and they always larry summers and look the establishment media officials are always going to want to take that away from activists they're always going to say oh no we just didn't do it because logistically it didn't make sense oh no we just didn't do it because we didn't have the votes in congress bullshit they were afraid and they felt it and they'll never give it to activists because they know if they say well shit it was the people then the people are going to feel really powerful right and they really don't want that they really don't want to be handed a mandate from the people they have their plan and they want to implement the plan and they don't want that to change so this is absolutely the result of direct action and organizing and and activists yeah um i just hope that like Larry Summers, and I made fun of him on Twitter, and I realized that, like, it's like, where's he going to go now? Oh, his pile of gold. <laughs> um, but uh, there is part of me that it's like, guys like that are so greedy. Like, his speaking fee is, like, so ridiculous yeah. that I just hope for his next job interview, since he's not going to be there. Because obviously, he did want this position. Yeah. Uh, for his next job interview, it's like a woman interviewing him. <laughs> and she just, like, slowly pulls out a list of his quotes about women. <laughs> it just makes him, did you say this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I'm smart enough to not hire you. (laughs) Squarespace is a fantastic platform that allows anyone to easily build professional-grade websites and online portfolios. And as a firm with a focus on design, they're really striving to create the perfect environment for creative types to display whatever it is they want to share with the world. So photographers and artists are pretty easy. You put up images of your art, but musicians are the next frontier. Squarespace has just released new features catering to musicians who want to display and sell their music and merchandise directly to fans online. All of the payment processing is handled by Stripe.com, so you can depend on them to be completely secure with phrases like PCI compliant and SSL enabled, which probably means something to someone who actually knows about this sort of thing. So whether you're selling your digital wares like music or your physical wares like your art, or just displaying a great looking portfolio of what you've created, Squarespace is the easiest way to get you up and running with a professional website in no time. So go ahead and give Squarespace a try for free for 14 days. Then when you're ready to sign up, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT10, that's L-E-F-T and the number 10, to get 10% off your purchase. You should consider signing up for a full year so you get that discount over the whole year. And that offer code also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. So again, the offer code is LEFT10 to get 10% off when you create your own space at squarespace.com. I
To paraphrase Margaret Thatcher, there is no such thing as the Tea Party. There is only a collection of individual billionaires. Seriously. Back in 2009 and 2010, you know, during the debate about Obamacare and during the midterm elections that swept Reagan, uh, Republican, excuse me, Republicans into power in the House of Representatives, this was all after the banks, you know, after the, after the big crash, and people were really PO'd at the banksters, right? And we first caught a glimpse of a monster. That monster has now taken over the halls of Congress. It has shut down the government that George Washington had three horses shot out from underneath him to create. That monster, of course, is the Tea Party. At the time, many of the folks in the establishment media, eh, yeah, well, you know, it's grassroots. It's like, you know, this is uh, like the Tea Party that started this country back in 1773 or started the movement to create this country. Look at all those crowds of people outside the Capitol and the mall in Washington, D.C. They're upset about President Obama. Now they're taking it to the streets. And you had Fox so-called news pumping out all this pro-Tea Party propaganda. and The major news outlets were either too frightened or too busy laughing to really check this out and see who was behind this thing. So for a while, it seemed that the Tea Party was actually a grassroots uprising. But as the smoke cleared, it became obvious that the Tea Party was not at all a grassroots democratic movement. And in fact, in many ways, doesn't even reflect traditional American values. In fact, it's the very opposite of grassroots and democratic values. It was the creation of billionaires intent on destroying our government, preventing Americans from getting access to health care, and sabotaging any attempt to regulate Wall Street or the oil industry. A small handful of oil and Wall Street groups behind the Tea Party, groups like Freedom Works and Americans for Prosperity. These were all front organizations for the billionaire oil tycoons and the banksters who wrecked the economy. And if you need any more proof of whose interest the Tea Party actually represents, consider this. Americans for Prosperity and Freedom Works actually began as parts of the group Citizens for a Sound Economy, which was created back in 1984 to defend the interests of big tobacco companies. They even started something that they called a Tea Party in the 1980s, so the smokers could have a smokers' rights group. The billionaires behind these groups weren't trying to save democracy. They were trying to hijack it. And these guys were rich and powerful enough to be able to essentially buy their own politicians and dupe a few thousand American activists to do their bidding. It, you know, we should have seen this. The Tea Party's astroturf roots should have been obvious to anyone who is paying attention to their rallies. Back in 2009, for example, Americans for Prosperity, the pet project of the oil-rich Koch brothers, actually bust Tea Party activists around the country to protest President Obama's proposed health care law, you know, Obamacare. Which brings us back to Maggie Thatcher. Right? She was the UK's conservative prime minister from 79 to 90, and she once said, there is no such thing as society, there is only a collection of individuals. 
Right? This was the Ayn Rand theory. But actually, a similar thing can be said about the Tea Party. There is no such thing as the Tea Party. There's only a collection of individual billionaires and their front groups. And in January 2010, five right-wing justices on the Supreme Court handed that collection of individual billionaires a big gift. It was called Citizens United. And that decision said, money is speech. And the government cannot, or in only very limited ways, can restrict corporate electioneering. Supreme Court essentially gave the billionaires behind the Tea Party the power to hire their own politicians, to buy politicians, to wreak havoc in Congress. People, the politicians who said that they were fighting for liberty, but and their common word, freedom and liberty, they're really working in the interests of the corporate billionaire class. Now, people are figuring this out. And that's why the number of actual Tea Party activists has declined so quickly from the early days of 2010. Now that the Kochs and their allies can buy their own lawmakers, <laughs> they don't need the they don't need the you know those little spunky activists dressed in the tricolor corner hats and people following politicians around and harassing them back in 2009 2000. They don't need them anymore. Since the 2010 Citizens United decision, it's like hey, you can just buy your own politician. So now these billionaires count on people like Pete Sessions and Ted Cruz to do their bidding on Capitol Hill. Both of those guys, by the way, received huge campaign donations from groups like Club for Growth and Coke Industries. And right now those bought politicians are towing the billionaire party line to a T. So we shouldn't be calling it a Tea Party. We should be calling it the billionaire party. They've shut down the government in what seems to be an attempt to sabotage Obamacare and prevent the media from informing Americans about how to use its insurance exchanges, and, and, and also to prevent us from talking about the IPCC report. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's out there that's happening. Make no mistake about it. This has always been the end goal of this Tea Party's monster. It wanted to destroy government's ability to protect middle-class working people while patting the wallets of its billionaire sponsors and doing away with the legacy of the New Deal when Franklin Roosevelt declared war on economic royalists. Remember that? But you know the thing about monsters? Like vampires, right? They can't handle garlic or crosses or silver bullets. Well, the Tea Party has an antidote, too. And that antidote is rolling back the Supreme Court's Citizens United doctrine that corporations are people and money is speech. So if you want to take back our hijacked democracy from the billionaires and their lackeys in Congress... then we need to take away their blood, their lifeblood, which is billionaire money flowing into our elections. And then we can have a real democracy like the real Tea Party would be proud of, right? Like the one that stood up to the world's biggest corporation back in 1773. But if you want to do that... You got to amend the Constitution. And if you want to amend the Constitution, you know, there's this incredible group, move to amend.org. They've got little groups all over the country. People start them in their kitchens and their living rooms, invite a few friends over. And they start lobbying to 
create a constitutional amendment. The constitutional amendment is there on the website, movetoamend.org, that simply says corporations are not entitled to rights under the Bill of Rights, under the Constitution. Only human beings are. And money is not speech. Words are speech. Real simple. Real simple. And over 500 communities now have passed resolutions because of, this is an entirely grassroots movement and it is entirely, it, it, it's, it's all volunteers. Move to men.org. I mean, it's just, this is like, you want to take the cancer out of our society? Move to men.org. Carl Sagan, thank you for the Alex Jones clip. I think it really opened the eyes of some libertarian-inclined friends of mine on Facebook. I think the Koch brothers' influence of not only the Tea Party, but also libertarian ideology is becoming a little more apparent to people, so maybe this government shutdown debacle might start to move some of the 30-somethings who fell for Ron Paul back toward the left end of the spectrum. Indeed. I mean, look. You know, back in the day when I was doing Dylan Radigan and uh, arguing with Tim Carney, you really had a problem with people demonizing the Koch brothers. Now, um, and he would go to their retreats and whatnot. I don't know that they paid him enough to uh, shape his thinking. Who, who knows? Um, but the bottom line is, is that the Koch brothers fund these libertarian ideologies because they want to improve their business. They claim that they don't want to see any corporations getting largesse, but of course they get largesse. Not only do they probably get it in the form of subsidies, but they also get it in the form of tax expenditures, in the form of imminent domain that we see taking place through Texas and Oklahoma for uh, things like Keystone and their other pipelines. They get government largesse in a myriad of ways. And the less regulation, and when we say regulation, we know what that means. That means the more society at large subsidizes their business model by paying for the cost of externalities of them doing business, the higher their profit margins. And so lack of regulation, lack of a force that forces them to pay for their externalities, which they shift that cost onto us, is a subsidy. They try to frame it that regulation puts an undue burden on business. That burden is not undue. It is the burden of having to pay your operating costs. It is the burden of not being able to shift onto the public and to society at large your operating costs. 
That's why they want to be freed from those shackles. Because those shackles are a bunch of us saying, hey, you can't pee on me. At least without my permission. I know you've got to relieve yourself, but you can't pee here. You're burdening me, man. I'm having to hold it in. Or pee on myself. Or have to go find a toilet. Why should you have access to a toilet? <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. That there's just sort of communist I'm not sure, I'm not assumptions sure. that come. I'm not sure I understand your where you're going with that metaphor. Well, why should you should, force me? Why to should go you to force me to provide for you a toilet and force me not to pee on you? Right. That's basically what the response is, right? The response is, why should you force me to find a toilet? Right. Well, you can pee on yourself. Well, I know just what you think of me, drowning in your economy. I know just what you think of me, I feel it trickle down. I know just what you think of me, drowning in your economy. I know just what you think of me, I feel it trickle down. Supreme Court is considering a case called McCutcheon versus FEC. Now, if you thought Citizens United was bad, wait till you get a load of McCutcheon. This promises to be Citizens United on steroids. Now, initially, we used to be able to limit the campaign spending uh, because we knew that it uh, often corrupted our politicians. Uh, but, of course, slowly throughout time, the Supreme Court has taken that ability away from us. So in Buckley v. Vallejo, they said that money is speech, and they said there would be uh, no limit on campaign spending. There would still be a limit on how much an individual could contribute. Now, later on, through many different cases, they even whittled that down, and in Citizens United, they said... If you're giving an independent expenditure, well, then you could be unlimited donations. Now, it took a system that was already broken, corrupt, and, and, and in terrible shape and made it much, much worse. Well, now McCutcheon promises to do it even more. And they're saying, okay, now, the, one of the few remaining things is, yes, you can give unlimited uh, independent expenditures and donations. And yes, if you're running a campaign, you could spend unlimited. But now what we'd like to do is to be able to give almost an unlimited amount directly to the politicians and to the political parties. So in the old days, which is today, the old rules, the limit you can give for an individual is $123,200 and $200 in the 2014 election cycle, for example. Okay, So that is the max you can give to specific individual campaigns, and to the political parties. Okay, Then you can give unlimited to independent expenditures if you want. That's what the Koch brothers do, Sheldon Adelson, etc. Well, what the court is now considering is giving up to $3.5 million to the joint fundraising committees so that you can spread that around to all the politicians in the particular party that you like. Actually, if you want to give to both political parties, and if you're bribing folks, perhaps you think, why not? You can actually go up to $7 million if you max out on both parties. 
because those p- poor people only giving $123,000 to politicians, well, golly gee, that just wasn't enough. We should allow them to uh, give bribes up to $3.5 million. I, I wonder if they would have disproportionate power in this system. Now, meanwhile, Antonin Scalia doesn't think so. He thinks we put too many limits on the rich. And during questioning yesterday in oral arguments, he explained that aggregate limits have a consequence to sap the vitality of political parties. <laughs> so, Scalia thinks that the political parties are too weak now. I mean, there's unlimited spending in other arenas because of people like Anton and Scalia. And why shouldn't we let the political parties do unlimited spending too? And get unlimited donations. Oh, the poor political parties, they've been sapped of their vitality. And then, double irony here. He says the aggregate limits are not stopping big money in politics. Yeah, I know. That's because you opened other giant back doors for the rich and the corporations to funnel money into the politicians. You're the one who opened that door. And now you're saying, well, it looks like they're already corrupt. Might as well make them more corrupt. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Antonin. We really appreciate it. I know, the devil's in the details. So, we're not done yet, though. Lee Fung wrote a great article uh, about how if the conservatives win on McCutcheon, if they get a full, complete victory, there's another door that it opens that's even worse. So, let me just review for you the critical case in 1976 that started all this mess was Buckley v. Vallejo. The court there said money equals speech. Okay, Now, you get money is property, and so a lot of people would certainly argue with that contention, and it opened the Pandora's box. Then, they also said candidates can spend an unlimited amount. And again, that's where you then, in every chart, economic chart you see, the, di- the great divergence begins in 1976 and 1978, uh, where uh, somehow, oh, golly gee, uh, since the campaigns could spend an unlimited amount, they wind up somehow getting an unlimited amount, and usually from incredibly rich folks and incredibly rich corporations. So corporate profits skyrocket, the, our productivity is still great, but our wages start to stagnate, starting all with Buckley v. Vallejo. But even back then, they put in a couple of restrictions. They said... Uh, there's a cap on donations that are permissible. So even though you can spend as much you, as you want on a campaign, they can't give you as much as they want any particular donor, right? So it had some limits. Well, now they're arguing McCutcheon that those limits should be thrown out. So Buckley v. Vallejo was not extreme enough. Those parts of Buckley v. Vallejo that started the mess in the first place should be overturned to make it even more extreme. They had one other element. It said the appearance of corruption is a standard that we have to be concerned about. It's not just corruption, but if the public believes that there's an appearance of corruption because as a lobbyist you're giving them money and then you're voting, or you're taking their money and then you're giving them your votes, that's at least an appearance of corruption. And that's something that the government has an interest in regulating. Well, now the conservatives are arguing, and by the way, the Republican National Party is arguing, gee, I wonder which side is more corrupt, that you know what? we shouldn't even worry about the appearance of corruption. And if the Supreme Court agrees, there are so many different laws, both at the federal level and at the local level, where people say, because of the appearance of corruption, we can't let lobbyists do this or that. All of those would be wiped off. Total free reign. 
unlimited campaign spending, unlimited donations, unlimited appearance of corruption. If you thought it was bad now, and it's about almost as bad as it could be, they're planning to make it even worse. Now, look, if, even if the Supreme Court doesn't go in this direction, they somehow miraculously vote no, okay, the system would still be horribly broken. If they vote yes, all the people who sit in there go, oh, no, no, I think maybe the Supreme Court might reverse itself. No, no, we don't need a constitutional amendment because maybe the Supreme Court will change its mind. <laughs> if anything, the only opportunity they have is, unfortunately, in this conservative Supreme Court, is to make it worse, not better. Okay? So get real. The only thing that's going to work is a constitutional amendment saying that corporations are not people that cannot spend unlimited amount of money on our politicians and we should publicly finance the elections so that our politicians are not forever hooked on their legalized bribes gee I wish there was a group that was doing that all oh, right wolf-pack.com look that's why we set up Wolfpack everything else is a pipe dream an amendment is real it's the one thing the Supreme Court decadent as they are seeped in corruption as they are cannot ignore it goes above their head and says this is the American people we have spoken and we're tired of this corruption and we don't give a damn what you think you put it in the Constitution they can't take it out reclaim the country for the people not for the donors wolf-pack.com do whatever you can sign up that's great donate if you can become a member help us get our democracy back One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. You know, we the people are supposed to have the power in America. This was That's why the first three words of the Constitution are, we the people. It's like, we're in charge, we're establishing this for us. That was the idea of the founders, and it has been taken from us. Since the Reagan Revolution, we've become the land of kings, warlords, and theocrats. Let me explain. As Thomas Jefferson pointed out, from the founding of Samaria 7,000 years ago until 1776, one of three types of people and groups pretty much ruled everyone else. They were the hereditary kings, the violent warlords, or the theocrats. And they justified these forms of tyranny by saying that the, the people could not rule themselves. Instead, they had to be ruled by somebody else. One of the biggest believers in this was Thomas Hobbes. Back in 1634 in Leviathan, he said, Humans are by nature evil, and the life without the iron fist of church or state would be, quote, 
war of every man against every man resulting in a society where life is poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Kings, warlords, and theocrats had rights, and they granted privileges to the people. Jefferson and the revolutionaries of 1776 came along and flipped this power structure on its head. We the people, they said, are in charge of ruling. We don't need no kings. We don't need no theocrats. We don't need, you know, theocracy is a dangerous and flawed system. And we must be so vigilant about warlords arising in America that our Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, read it yourself with your own eyes, our Constitution explicitly says that the Army of the United States cannot exist any longer than two years without oversight and renewed appropriation from Congress. When Jefferson took power from the kings and the warlords and the theocrats and gave it to the people, he said, I know of no safe depository of the ultimate powers of the society but the people themselves. About theocracy, Jefferson told uh, Alexander von Humboldt that, quote, history, I believe, furnishes no example of a priest-ridden people maintaining a free civil government. This marks the lowest grade of ignorance of which their civil as well as religious leaders will always avail themselves for their own purposes. End of quote. So thanks to Jefferson and our founding fathers, the power structure that existed for thousands of years, theocrats, kings, warlords on the top, people on the bottom, was flipped upside down so that the people had rights and could decide which privileges they would give to the hereditary kings, warlords, and would-be theocrats. This new power structure worked pretty good for about 200 years. People in charge, rich people, yeah, hey, doing what the rest of us say, got to pay 91% income tax, right? Theocrats, the churches, yeah, they didn't even have basically an income tax exemption until the 60s. But beginning in 1981 with the Reagan Revolution, the hereditary kings, the violent warlords, and I know you're scratching your head right now going to the violent warlords. I'll get to it. The hereditary kings, the violent warlords, and the theocrats began reclaiming the power that they once had in other lands. They began reclaiming it here. Well, the theocrats had it in Massachusetts with the founding of this country. You know, from the beginning of the pilgrims until the country is founded. But now these three groups are making deals with each other to suppress the power of we the people, to take away our rights. So here's who they are. Today's hereditary kings are the wealthy elite, the top 1% of Americans who control a staggering 43% of our nation's wealth. And they continually fight inheritance taxes so their children can take over their wealth and maintain their dynasties. These are hereditary kingdoms or royal families, right? Meanwhile, America's modern-day hereditary kings are conspiring with today's theocrats. Megachurches, particularly in the South, have become major power centers and organizing forces for the hereditary kings to spread their ideas and messages and to grow their dynasties. For example, prosperity theology teaches that you are rich because God made you that way. That's the case. Logical flip side. If you're poor, God made you that way. 
This is how the theocrats justify the existence of the plutocrats. And the poor people. But even with the help of the theocrats, the hereditary kings couldn't continue to get richer and richer and richer without the help of the violent warlords, which we refer to today as the military-industrial complex. The military-industrial complex takes up nearly half of the entire U.S. budget every year, with much of it being privatized, and the profits, therefore, going to the billionaires, also known as the hereditary kings, and their defense corporations. You see how this is coming together? The Founding Fathers never envisioned this return to the brute and dictatorial power structure that basically for, you know, 7,000 years dominated the globe, stripping rights from people and giving them to kings and warlords and theocrats. More importantly, it's fundamentally undemocratic. We are on the verge of some really serious decisions that we need to make here in this country about a return to the core values that this nation was built on. Do we break up these hereditary ruling families by aggressively establishing and enforcing inheritance taxes on great wealth? Do we break up the theocracy by taking away tax-exempt status of churches and doing away with government subsidies? And do we break up the out-of-control military-industrial complex? I mean, we could do it. Right? Increase transparency, shut down the revolving door here in Washington, D.C., enforce the Sherman Antitrust Act, and all privatization of traditional government functions. I think we should. I think that kings, warlords, and theocrats, the three great threats to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness identified by Thomas Jefferson 250 years ago, I think these three groups have no place in America. We need to give them the boot. We need to take back our rights and put power back in the hands of people. If America is to survive as America, think about this. If we are to survive as the nation that we were envisioned as, now obviously not the nation that we started out as. Right? We had slavery. We had disenfranchisement of women. It was, you know, it was, it was far from perfect. But the vision was clearly articulated. If America is to survive as a we the people the nation, as opposed to me the rich guy, we the people, then we the people have to stand up and restore the core values that Jefferson and the founders put into place. We have to say enough already. The Walton family, six people, control more wealth than a third of the entire country of the United States. You know, you can be rich and pass it down to your children, but a third of the wealth of the entire country? At what point do you say enough is enough? We have this nobillionaires.com website. Let's place a 100% tax on all wealth, not income, wealth, above a billion dollars. You can be a billionaire in real terms, but not a multi-billionaire, because it's not good for society. 
because there is I, I, I will grant you an economy is not a total zero-sum game but there is a certain amount of zero-sum to it there is a certain amount of when when Johnny takes all the toys all the other kids don't have any toys there is a certain amount of that it's real well, you can show me a graph on the side projector Giving all the goals of the private sector Tell me they seem nice guys and I'll say great So did Hannibal Lecter You tell me that the money trickles down What do you take me for some kind of stupid clown? Cause it's clear to me that the money trickles up From the sweat and the blood of the workers living down there in the mud So who's that protector now? Then the governments of all learned to kowtow Bow down to the ground J.P. Morgan, as reported last Friday, posts its first loss since 2004. The unshakable, the brilliant Jamie Diamond. Um, the bank took a $7.2 billion hit from litigation expenses and posted its first quarterly loss since 2004. In unusually humble language for a CEO once lionized on Wall Street in Washington, Jamie Dimon said the first loss under his leadership was very painful for me personally. Later in a conference call with investors, Jamie Dimon said it's very hard to fight with your regulators and the federal government. Yes, you know who also said that? Al Capone. Uh, even putting litigation aside, revenue fell and other results were lukewarm. And Tim Fernholtz uh, reports that J.P. Morgan devoted $9.3 billion to legal expenses last quarter, driving its net loss of $380 million. Its legal troubles took up 39% of its total revenue in that same period, by far the company's single largest expense. The largest bank in the United States spends more money fighting and paying off legal and regulatory challenges than it does paying its staff, buying securities, or paying rent on its 5,600 Chase retail bank branches. And Tim Fernholz has a good, uh, good question. What is it, <clears throat> what is your largest expense say about your business? <laughs> Ideally, the biggest cost should be at the heart of what a firm does. Goldman Sachs' largest expense was compensation and benefits for its infamous talent. Apple's largest expense in its most recent quarterly report was on sales, largely new stores and employees. General Motors' largest expense is building cars. For Goldman Sachs, it's trying to stay out of jail. Since 2010, J.P. Morgan has devoted $31 billion to legal problems. $31 billion. That's almost half its net earnings in that same period. Stunning. What does it say about your business 
when your largest expense is trying to avoid the cops. I understand that this is all fun and games for you, Sam, but I hear that and I think, what are you doing to the likelihood of him becoming Treasury Secretary? Like, is this just a joke for you? <laughs> are you trying to, like, deprive us of this guy's brain? I, I, you just got to feel bad. What if this guy just decides to pack it in and walk away? And then where will we be? I don't know. Why don't you keep pushing it? We'll see. We'll see, Unbelievable. Sam. Pushing poison to our children. Still promoting class division. See, we are starving, but you all fat. I don't know why they do us like that. Politicians, you better get right. These conditions ain't no good for life. Whose decision is it anyway? Yours or mine. We are so close to losing our democracy to the mercenary class, it's as if we're leaning way over the rim of the Grand Canyon, and all that's needed is a swift kick in the pants. Look out below. The predators in Washington are only this far from monopoly control of our government. They've bought the political system, lock, stock, and pork barrel, making change from within impossible. That's the real joke. Sometimes I long for the wit of a John Stewart or Stephen Colbert. They treat this town as burlesque and with satire and parody show it the disrespect it deserves. We laugh and punch each other on the arm and tweet that the rascals got their just dessert. But the last laugh always seems to go to the bold-faced names that populate this town, to them belong the spoils of a looted city. They get the tax breaks, the loopholes, the contracts, the payoffs. They fix the system so multimillionaire hedge fund managers and private equity tycoons pay less of a tax rate on their income than school teachers, police and firefighters, secretaries and janitors. They give subsidies to rich corporate farms and cut food stamps for working people facing hunger. They remove oversight of the Wall Street casinos, bail out the bankers who torpedo the economy, fight the modest reforms of Dodd-Frank, prolong tax havens for multinationals, and stick it to consumers while rewarding corporations. We pay. We pay at the grocery store. We pay at the gas pump. We pay the taxes they write off. Our low-wage workers pay with sweat and deprivation because this town, aloof, self-obsessed, bought off and doing very well, thank you, feels no pain. The journalists who could tell us these things rarely do, and some never. They aren't blind, simply bedazzled. Watch the evening news, any evening news, or the Sunday talk shows. Listen to the chit-chat of the early risers on morning TV, and ask yourself if you're learning anything about how this town actually works. William Grider, one of our craft's finest reporters, fierce and unbought despite a long life in Washington, once said that no one can hope to understand what is driving political behavior without asking the kind of gut-level questions politicians ask themselves in private. Who are the winners in this matter and who are the losers? Who gets the money and who has to pay? Who must be heard on this question and who can be safely ignored?
Perhaps they don't ask these questions because they fear banishment from the parties and perks from the access that passes as seduction in this town. Or perhaps they don't tell us these things because they fear that if the system were exposed for what it is, outraged citizens would descend on this town and tear it apart with their bare hands. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who call into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. I'm going to answer these voice messages as they come, so let's get started. Hey, Jay, this is Craig in Ohio, and I keep thinking the uh, GMO debate is going to end, so why bother calling? Um, eventually it would stop or I'd hear my argument, but I haven't yet. So I am one of the people that oppose the continued use of GMOs, but not because of a lot of the reasons that people have cited. And I, I'm just tired of hearing uh, my position being described as anti-science, uh, because I think you can make a case that the opposite is actually the anti-science position, especially if you consider the implications of climate change. The reason that I think we need to move away from GMOs is because we're heading toward 9 to 10 billion people on this planet. And if we continue to grow uh, using the new GMO seeds, we're going to need to use a tremendous amount of fossil fuels to produce enough food to feed all those people. So the only way we're going to uh, be able to survive on this planet happily and in a climate that we can uh, live in comfortably we need to completely transform the way we do agriculture around the globe. It's going to require a lot more people to work the land. It's going to require a lot more alternative fertilizers, alternative, the most ancient of fertilizers, manure, compost. It's going to require a lot more work. And the problem with GMOs is that they uh, allow us to take people off the land, reduce the number of farmers, and use inputs, chemical and fossil fuel inputs, that eventually are going to produce a planet that's just not livable for the majority of people. So we have two options. We can go down the road of uh, continued use of GMOs, in which case we're going to burn out our atmosphere, or we can transition to a more sustainable system of agriculture that relies on more ancient methods, and in the end, we will all be better off. So that's the brief summation of what I wanted to say. Thanks very much, and I love the show. Bye. I'm just going to save a bunch of people the effort of calling in and say that at least one of the counter arguments to this is that if we did not use huge amounts of energy in the form of fossil fuels to generate uh, more food on the, you know a, a slightly smaller amount of land, that the trade-off for that would be the use of much more land. So it's a, it's a trade-off, as I've been describing. It's kind of a choice between two bad options. We can use these high-tech agricultural practices that use a lot of energy and fossil fuels, or we can not use those fossil fuels, but we have to use way more land, which is going to have the uh, you know, automatic impact of lowering biodiversity and you know cutting down trees that act as carbon sinks and so on, exacerbating 
climate change in that way. When you get right down to it, the basics of the physics and chemistry we're discussing is not that complicated to comprehend. The more energy you put into the ground in the form of fossil fuels, the more you can get out of it in the form of food. And so if you put less energy into the ground, you just need more ground to produce the food. Hey, Jay. Casey from Chicago, Illinois, calling. I just got done listening to your latest episode on the police state. You know, I, <laughs> I'm i trying to come up with a word to describe my feelings after that episode. And the first word that came to mind was kind of disgusting, but I think more appropriately, I think, is hypocrisy. I was struck by the number of segments that were played where the host said, uh, the last one in particular, Chankin and his co-host, said, you know, yeah, there's lots of good cops out there, but. There are lots of good cops out there, but. And it's almost like they were choosing to focus on these minority anecdotal situations and not looking at the macro perspective. And I'm not just talking about that one clip. I'm talking about the overall segment. You know, coming at this from a policy analysis, a statistical analysis perspective, I would be curious to know, and I don't know if there's data out there or not, uh, aggregate data or whatever, I would be curious to know out of the number of shifts that are done daily by police in this country, the number of shifts, the number of police officers, how many of them are actual situations of abuse of force, police abuse, whatever the case may be. There was a segment, they were talking about having cameras on the, on the uh, police officers themselves and how that little, they have been a study show that it helps reduce the violence, but then they started talking about, you know, could this be something we do nationally? And, you know, I'm, I'm a very left person and I'm a very liberal person, but from a cost-benefit analysis, who would be the one monitoring this where would the data be stored? Who would be responsible for it? Would it? How much would it cost to implement such a system? And really, what would be the return on investment on, on putting cameras on every single police officer in this country? And really, would it be worth it? You know, I, I kind of liken the whole idea here of wanting to focus in on a small problem. And that's what I think this is, is a small problem, as opposed to the bigger picture, where I think the majority of our police force is not this evil, authoritative, overarching government entity that's, that's abusing their power. And I think that when I, the word hypocrisy comes to mind, basically what I'm saying is, when you look at climate change deniers, they look at this small amount of evidence over here, a small amount of research, I don't call it evidence, research over here and say, well, some say that this is not really what's going on. And I feel it's the same thing, that we have a little bit of a problem over here, but overall, the majority of the, the, the police officers in our country, they're good and they're, and they're doing their job, despite the fact that we keep cutting their pay. So I, I know I went over the student remark, but I, I just, I, I was, did not like that, that episode. I felt that it was um, highlighting a problem that needs to dealt with, be dealt with on an individual basis and doesn't necessarily require a systemic change. Uh, that's just my thoughts. Thanks, Jay. Bye.
So just a quick note on this one that I played this message because I know that a lot of people get really uncomfortable about criticizing police. Uh, you know, I can speak from personal uh, experience that white people are taught growing up that the police are there to help us when we need it. So hearing any evidence that they are, are actually hurting people is really difficult to process. And so we sort of internalize the idea that each individual case of abuse should only be seen as an individual instance and not representative of a larger trend. So speaking of statistical analysis about, uh, you know, as the caller mentioned, you know, the, the statistic that he's referring to about, uh, you know, cops wearing cameras and what, what does that do? David Pakman reported that that reduced complaints by 88%. And so, you know, keep in mind, people don't just complain when they get, uh, you know, tased and their heart stops, you know, they, they complain about all sorts of things. And so if, if complaints were reduced by 88%, that means that cops were, you know, they stopped doing things when they knew they were being filmed, all sorts of things, you know, that they stopped doing these things because they know that if they were being watched, that they wouldn't do them. They obviously do things in their regular jobs, uh, in the regular course of their duties, that they do not want other people to see. And so if they're being filmed, they change their actions. That's amazing. And so, okay, so let's talk about return on investment, which I think is a disgusting way to frame this discussion, but not totally illegitimate. Because, I mean, let's let's say, for instance, that putting a camera on cops would cost $10 trillion. Okay, well, I would probably say that that's too much, and it's not worth the, you know, the, the cost-benefit analysis doesn't work out. So obviously, there's a line somewhere, but I, I, I find sort of the framing of it frustrating that that's that's where Casey from Chicago uh, is coming from. I mean, it makes me wonder if Casey from Chicago were a person of color who'd been taught by his parents growing up to never make any sudden movements around cops to avoid being accidentally shot, if he'd be so obviously dubious about the concept of trying to systematically reduce police abuse as, as opposed to what he wants to do is just treat each individual case as an individual instance not representative of a larger trend. So, First of all, there would be a huge uh, – oh, so th this is the uh, benefits, my my speculations on the benefits. So first of all, th there would be a huge difference in the relationship between the communities and the police. I mean there are some places where people are currently afraid to call the cops, which can create this cycle of dangerous situations and social decline because if people knew that the cops had someone watching them – then they could potentially be seen as more trustworthy by those communities, which, you know, right now they're sort of afraid of the cops because they know the cops can kind of do whatever they want. And it's a he said, she said situation and they don't ever really get punished for anything. But then, of course, more pointedly, it just makes a huge difference in the lives of the people who actually experience the abuse, whether it be physical or verbal or, you know, actually like way over the top and, you know, being tased and injured and, and you know, sometimes killed. All of those sorts of things. I mean, that's that's a huge benefit. So, all right. So, so uh, you know, good, good cops and bad cops. Yeah, clearly, you know, most cops are, you know, they, they go into the profession not with the intention of being abusive. And so, for instance, if I were to become a cop, I would definitely go in, you know, wanting to be one of the good ones. And But I would also go into it with the understanding that environments profoundly influence people's behavior. So I would want for the environment of being a police officer to be managed in a way that reduces 
abuse as much as possible. And so just like as a citizen who, you know, I want a robust mental health care system available to reduce the number of people who snap and go on killing sprees. As a cop, I would want management and training that reduces the amount of unnecessary conflict between police and the people that they're there to protect. And, you know, there's the famous study of the Stanford students who are, you know, divided in half. Some become prisoners, some become guards, and they absolutely they step into those roles and you know, the prison guards start becoming abusive even though the people that they're you know keeping in this prison are just their fellow students who aren't guilty of anything so you know stepping into the role of a police officer in real life gives you real power and you know i made a joke at the beginning of that show saying that if absolute power corrupts absolutely then how much does 80,000 volts of power corrupt you well, you know, it's a joke, but it's also totally true. When you're given power, people's tendency is to use the power that they're given. And then finally, I just have to say that the comparison to climate change deniers was a complete non sequitur. Don't get me wrong. I understand how that uh, mental connection was made. A minority of cops are abusive. A minority of climate scientists think that climate change isn't happening. Trust me, there is no relation between those two <laughs> statements. And I also thought it would be interesting to kind of compare that idea, you know, hey, it's, it's only a minority of people who are involved in this problem. Well, why don't we compare that to the other issues that Best of Love covers? You know, only a minority of people are discriminated against based on their race. A minority of people are poor or unemployed. A minority of people depend on Social Security to survive. A minority of people are accidentally bombed by American missiles. A minority of people are maniacs who go on killing sprees. A minority of people, uh, you know, are going bankrupt from medical expenses. A minority of people are immigrants. A minority of people are members of the LGBTQ community. And, uh, you know, a minority of people are unable to access family planning serv services and so on and so on. Like the whole point of progressivism is to stick up for those in the minority. You know, I, I, and then obviously a minority of people are abused by police. So, you know, the, the point of progressivism is to stick up for those in the minority. And so those in the most danger of being oppressed and to work to make systemic changes to our society so that those in the majority and those in the, in the minority can live peacefully together. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is, that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash best of the left. It's an easy and incredibly powerful way to support the show. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing
Just a quick postscript to the discussion of cops and cameras. If you're still in need of a little bit of convincing of the benefits of adding cameras to police work, I highly recommend you check out the October 11th edition of This American Life, Act 1 of, of the episode titled Confessions. Uh, in Act 1, we you know sort of examine the effect of a videotape recording in the line of police work. Uh, there's absolutely no abuse uh, that takes place by all you know judgments. The police involved are the absolute you know pinnacle of the the standards of a good cop that that we would love to see you know every single cop exemplify, and, and yet mistakes are made, and it is the fact that there was a recording that allowed you know damage to be at least somewhat undone. So have a listen to that and then let your imagination run wild as to all the different types of mistakes that can be made completely inadvertently that could then be, you know, helped and fixed by the use of cameras.